Hello everybody and welcome to the Valencia review. The race finished more or less an hour ago, so Peko is more or less one and a half hours officially world champion. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're here to discuss it all because it was a crazy, crazy race. Uh, it was definitely super exciting. So hello, Kielin, and what did you think of it? Leo, hello once again, my friend, and hello everybody, and welcome back to the Bad Moto GP podcast. I'm sad because the season's over, but I'm delighted because it happened. Um, we got a finale worthy of the ending of the season. Let's put it that way. Um, we had some spectacular action across the whole weekend. Um, Moto three and Moto two had some things in it. Um, but Moto GP delivered as it always does, and then some. Uh, so really looking forward to getting into it and discussing everything that happened. Yeah, quick uh, heads up, I have more or less an hour because I have stuff to do mm -hmm. uh, with my motorcycle and uh, it gets new suspensions tomorrow. So the, the factory suspension gets thrown out and a better suspension gets in and we need to load the motorcycle to the truck. And so, yeah, we have to do this this evening and uh, this is the reason why I'm running short on time. I don't know if we necessarily get the time to discuss Model 2 and Model 3, but since the World Championship is uh, sealed in either class, maybe we'll have an, a minute or two to uh, point a little bit out here and there. Mm -hmm. But uh, the focus shall be on the Model GP race because A, it was absolutely crazy, and uh, B, the World Championship got decided. So we have more to talk about there. And I would just get into it with Peko, and he is now the first double champion in MotoGP, like back-to-back -back champion, since uh, Marc Marquez. And before that, only Valentino Rossi managed. Casey Stoner didn't, Jorge Lorenzo didn't, Fabio didn't, Juan Mir didn't. So uh, absolutely crazy achievement when mm -hmm. you put it into perspective, when you are named into one sentence with Valentino Rossi and Marc Marquez, you know you did something right. And uh, I would start off with discussing with you a little bit that Paco is extremely underappreciated, in my opinion, for his riding style. I've been very critical of him because of his crashing. I think he's tremendously stupid if the pressure is off. Mm -hmm. But I've been on record multiple times saying he is the cream of the top. No, he's the cream of the cream. And uh, the cream al always rises to the top when the pressure is on. And the pressure was on at the, basically after India. Mm -hmm. And he absolutely delivered more or less every race weekend. And I would like to hear your point of it. Is Peko as good as he gets credit for? Or is he better? Or is he maybe not as good as people say he is? So what do you think? Yeah, so first of all, my congratulations, because what he's done is a spectacular achievement. Back-to-back uh, -back champion, only Mar Marquez and Valentino Rossi occupied that space in the modern era. So firstly, my congratulations to Paco Bagnaia, because it's a phenomenal achievement. And a quick note on, the, on another very interesting fact. This season is the first season without back-to-back -back Grand Prix winners since 1949 since the dawn of the of motorcycle racing in the Grand Prix era. So we have not had a person winning two straight races in this entire season. 
and that's why it's been so brilliant. I know it shocked me when I saw it, but yeah, I didn't great. know it. You just mentioned it, and yeah. I'm just thinking like it can't be right. But I guess the sprint races kind of mess it up again because Hoch yeah. Martin obviously won a couple of sprint races in a row. Peko did, so uh, yeah, it's it's a weird stat with all the sprint races because it feels wrong, but it's mm. actually right when you think about it. Yeah, exactly. It, it's really, really weird. But yeah, as far as Paco goes, he's an incredibly deserving champion. You know, I've been as vocal and critical of him as you have been in that his tendency to be stupid is off the charts when the pressure is off him. But when the pressure's on, there's nobody better. It's really, really weird. He, you know, he does rise to the top and he becomes the creme de la creme when there is the utmost pressure on him. Like this whole weekend, Jorge Martin goes out and dominates the sprint race. Everybody's on Paco again. And then today he looked as good as I've ever seen him. It's absolutely outrageous. Um, and to be honest, I th I do think Paco gets the credit he deserves. Um, on like on the whole, um, there's always going to be some people who are critical and who say, "Ah, uh, Paco's not good. He's this, that, the other." I do think for the most part he does get the credit he deserves, and I'm very happy about that because he's a spectacular MotoGP rider. He really is. He's not a. He, I don't think he's as spectacular a rider as Jorge Martin or some of the other riders, but he's a more consistent rider than Jorge Martin and the others. And at the end of the day, that's what wins you points, and that's what wins you MotoGP World Championships. So, credit to Paco Banyaya. He was brilliant today. He's been brilliant all season, and he's a very worthy winner and worthy of defending the number one plate too. I think people get lost a little bit in this whole team orders thing yeah. because you read it all over it mm -hmm. um all over social media like look at my comment section uh, after the sprint race for example you know and i believe due to the fact that it may look like paco gets help from other ducatis that he doesn't get the credit he deserves i mean maybe during the 2022 season, there were some team orders. Maybe they said, hey, please don't take Paco out when you overtake him and make it extra careful because we have to win a world championship. And it makes sense when you're competing against the Yamaha. It makes sense when you think about that Ducati wasn't a world champion until uh, back until tw 2007 with Casey Stoner. Mm-hmm. And uh, with all the money they're putting in, the, it's understandable that in 2022, maybe something happened there. Mm -hmm. But in 2023, with uh, three Ducatis in the top three, it's it's a difficult argument to make for me. And I don't think there were any team orders. I think they said, hey, please be careful with, with each other, but don't... I mean, Fabio Di Gian Antonio was good to go in Qatar. Enea Bassinini was good to go in, in Malaysia. So, mm. Peanut is here. Hello. Hello. Come here. Hello. Come here. It's only fitting that Peanut returns for the finale of the season. We had to do it. We had to do it, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. 
But I do think uh, you make an, I, I do think you make an excellent point, Leo, about that with Ducati. Um, it's much different when you have an external threat like a Yamaha that's really pushing hard for the championship. But realistically, you know, Davide Tardazzi and Gigi Delina, they care about the constructors' championship, and as long as Ducatis are winning, they're happy to let them fight it out. As long as they don't injure each other or take each other out, so I have to say I agree. I don't think there was any team orders because if there was, Pecco would be winning every race and he didn't uh so at the end of the day that in, in my opinion that kind of dispels that on its own yeah and basically where i wanted to go with it is that uh, i believe Paco is just incredibly difficult to overtake this man is a motherfucker on the brakes you saw it today with fabio di gian antonio Jorge martin he had nothing to lose he had to beat Paco and couldn't pass him i mean hello <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't pass him and i think that it may look like okay let's say luca marini okay maybe he doesn't overtake peco if he doesn't have to you know mm -hmm. but uh, i think that generally peco is just so much better than people get him give him credit for and he is so difficult to overtake I mean, Jorge Martin is the best example today. He had to be, beat Paco. And we all saw later on how aggressive he was. But he couldn't get close to him uh, enough, close enough to overtake, you know. Obviously, he got close to him at the end of the straight. But uh, I think Paco is just incredible. And if he can sort out this crashing, I mean, what he did this season was... Goodbye. Uh, what he did this season was absolutely incredible because he, especially in the second half of the season, he didn't have the easiest path to victory oftentimes. Mm -hmm. He had to go to, uh, through Q1. He had to go uh, through difficult sprint weekends, which are basically the reason why Jorge Martin was in championship contention because Agreed. he was so good in, uh, in sprint races. Mm -hmm. And what he was able to achieve despite not being good from the beginning of P1 or FP1, then it's it's very incredible that you can work over a weekend and take all of the information you get from a sprint race and put it to good use in a main race. And Peko did this better than anybody over the whole season. Yeah. And I just think that if he can sort out this crashing, which is really not necessary because he always crashes when the pressure is off. There is mm -hmm. no reason to crash. Like, okay, the Maverick Vinales crash and the Catalonia crash, you can kind of exclude it uh, from it because there were other factors at play. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, Paco was just absolutely crazy good. And his two crashes in Argentina, America, and then the last one in India, they were so unnecessary because the pressure was off. If he can fix this, there is good night for everybody because... No, nobody beats him i mean on a sunday Jorge martin hasn't been particularly good i don't want to beat uh on this man while he's down mm -hmm. but there's a reason why this why this championship went uh to peco and most of the points get awarded on a sunday and he was simply the best rider this season he was so incredibly good and when this man is in front you cannot overtake him it's it's crazy no, you're absolutely spot on. I completely agree with what you've said. Um, you know, in terms of today, like you said about Paco being a motherfucker on the brakes, which I completely agree with, 
you saw in the final turn heading onto the back straight to the finish line, you know, Paco taking a wider line. And everybody was saying, you know, Paco's having trouble with the line. I don't think he was having trouble with the line. I think he was intentionally taking the line wide so he could outbreak everybody else and get that Ducati fired onto the straight. And to make the, the this kind of adjustment during the race is unbelievable. It shows a real sign of intelligence and it shows a world champion mentality as well to be able to adjust and to make your opponents take a different line and struggle to work out what you're doing. Paco's a really, really smart rider. And like you said, the only person on his day who can beat Paco is really Paco. You know, when he crashes on his own, if he cuts out those crashes, he could theoretically go undefeated in a season because he is that good and i the last thing i'll say about Paco before we move on because you made a very good point leo there's nobody on the grid better than Paco and his side of the garage at taking the data and making adjustments across the weekend to the sunday race and look jorge martin's the sprint king i have no question in calling him that and no doubt but the big points are awarded on the Sunday, and Ducati realized that. And Paco's ability to disseminate information and make it count when the big points count, that's why he's the champion today. And he's just a very, very smart, mature rider. And realistically, well done to Paco, because he's played the game very, very well. Yeah, I would like to point out three weekends where I believe that Paco really made the difference for this world championship the first one's indonesia he had a terrible weekend he had a bad sprint but then as we said he collected all the data and made the best out of it cut through the whole field and won the race at the end where jorge martin crashed mm -hmm. then i believe philip island was another one which was incredibly valuable because he made the right choice with the tire he managed it perfectly over the race weekend and he finished, I believe, in P2. Jean Zaka won. Peko yes. should have been in yes, P2 and Digia in P3. And he made the absolute right call with the tie. He was so good over this race and didn't panic when Rojo Martin was out there in front with five seconds uh, there. And the last one where I believe he really made the difference was in Qatar. Because, again, he didn't have a particularly good sprint in Qatar. But... Uh, he had an incredible race. He had a start, which was better than anybody's, yeah. better than the KTMs, better than all of the Ducatis in front of him. He had... I don't I don't know if this is luck that Jorge Martin had problems with the tire when you talk from Peko's perspective, but um, it was definitely a benefit for him. But even without it, you could argue that uh, Peko and Digia would be in front and Jorge Martin maybe would have uh, caught them, maybe not. I don't know how good Jorge Martin's start would have been, but this weekend in Qatar was so valuable for him and it, it laid the foundation for him to win the World Championship. It was incredible and again, he is so difficult to overtake. You mentioned the last corner. I mean, you saw it live. I was convinced Fabio Di Giannatonio will go for it. And there will be people who call it team orders, but there was no reason for team orders. I am quite sure that Jorge Martin crashed in front of Digia when yes. he crashed. It should have been in front, but I'm not 100% sure because he made this mistake and all. But Digia was coming from pretty far behind on the grid, and I think he must have saw uh, 
Joan Zarco, not Joan Zarco, sorry, Jorge Martin crashed and then figured out that it was Joan Zarco he overtook. So he must have uh, knew that Paco was already world champion. So no reason for him to not attack. And you, you saw he was so frustrated and i believe peko did something with his lines he did something with his breaking points which threw De Gian antonio off because he was right there but he couldn't overtake mm-hmm. and this is like the maturity of peko that when he's in front you can't overtake him he has this incredible pace and when you have a situation like this last corner nothing is more or less on the line for Peko because he could crash and he'd still be world champion so and DG is still not managing to overtake him I believe this speaks volume and it's not team orders it's not Ducati orders whatsoever it's not DG fighting for a place at Valentino Rossi and trying to help Peko it was just that Peko was better and Peko is so incredibly good that you could make an argument that Malaysia in 2022 wasn't team orders, that Inia Bastianini simply couldn't overtake Paco because he was so good. Mm-hmm. And I believe it, it's just that Paco is so much better than people actually think he is, and therefore they have a solution. Okay, it must be team orders. It must be manipulation by Ducati that Jorge Martin uh, didn't win the championship whatsoever. You know, you saw some ridiculous comments over the internet, but it's it's so obvious to me that Paco is just this good that you just can't overtake him. And Jorge Martin was sucked in the slipstream. Yep. That was unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But still, he couldn't overtake him when he was right there. And I don't know why. Because he was at the end of the back straight. He, he was, uh, on the third finish straight, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. He was right there and simply couldn't overtake him. And therefore, he was more or less in this zone. Um half asking uh, overtake or half asking not to and then he was i believe caught a little bit because he didn't know exactly what he wanted to do in this situation this is my guess and this could have also been that Paco just threw him off with his breaking points with his lines there and Paco is such a deserving world champion because he is incredibly good and if he can be consistent then it's gonna be fun next year with Mark Marcus on a Ducati so I would like to discuss the Mark Marcus crash uh, with Ooh. you. So please give me your point of view. Yeah, Jorge Martin fucked up. <laughs> that That's kind of the simplest way of putting it. Um, look, Jorge Martin knew that he had to go out and be desperate today because the situation wasn't in his control. He knew that even if he won the race, he would have to hope something would happen to Paco when it was never really going to. So he knew that he had to get to the front as soon as he possibly could. And look, I'm going to criticize Martin in a bit, but we got to give him credit for the first part that he did really, really well. He got a very good launch off the line. He undercut the two KTMs brilliantly. Um, and he got to the second place really, really well behind Paco. Where it basically starts to go wrong is at the beginning of, I think, lap three or four, when he sucked into the slipstream of Paco, um, he basically comes in too hot, can't get stopped because of the slipstream, and nearly takes them both out at that point. Um, In fact, he was lucky he didn't take them both out at that point anyway. Um, He knifes back across the track quite dangerously, you could argue, but he gets back on track. Um, 
And then, like a madman, he tries to start overtaking everybody. Um, he's in a battle with Maverick Vinales, which was really good to watch, but he got past Maverick. And then going into was it turn was it turn five or turn six near the first right hander? He basically it was turn four. Turn four. That's it. Um, so he goes into turn four just completely overcooks it, can't get stopped, hits the rear tire of Mark Marquez, and he sends Mark into the stratosphere, um, or the, the atmosphere, sorry, um, and he just can't get stopped at that point. Um, you know, he just... I, I don't even know if Mark Marquez still come down from the sky yet. <laughs> he launched him that high, but look, it was stupid, it was reckless, and it was dumb when he crashed, but... Um, you you almost can't blame Jorge Martin because he went out and he did what he knew he had to do. He just got the execution all wrong, uh, unfortunately. But he's had a phenomenal year. He's had a brilliant campaign. He's taken it to Peco to the final day. And look, you can argue without the sprint races, he wouldn't be anywhere near. And I'd probably agree. But he's made the most of what he's had and he's given it one hell of a go. So Jorge Martin's had a brilliant year and he's a deserving runner-up. I think the Mark Marquez Roche Martin crash was a result of both riders uh, totally over the limit. Mm. And the thing is, Mark is on such a slow bike that he has to take enormous risks. And we saw it go wrong multiple times this season. Mm -hmm. And like for the first time, basically, we saw somebody on a Ducati in the same situation, not because the Ducati was bad, but because he had to go for it. And um, Martin is 100% at fault. He fucked up there, but but he had to do it. I mean, there was no scenario where playing it safe would work out for him. Yeah. Nothing. I mean, Peko was in front. I still believe that if Jorge Martin didn't crash, Peko wouldn't have uh, let those two KTMs overtake him. Mm. Because why? So, um, and I think that Jorge knew, okay, I have to overtake. Mark is taking phenomenal risks, and we all know that Mark makes up his time on the brakes. Therefore, he was also in a situation where he, like, had to close the door on him, because why should he let Martin pass if he's on the, on the edge? And then... Martin had nowhere to go because Mark closed the door on him, rightfully so. Mm -hmm. But then he just get launched uh, into the stratosphere and he landed very, very badly on his neck. Yeah, it looked It looked very bad at first. It's now after seeing the replays, uh, how he walked off there and him being in the box, I think that he made a... He had once again a lucky escape. Yeah. But I would like to point something out which drove me nuts. There was the situation. Jorge Martin overtook Maverick Vinales two or three times mm -hmm. and Maverick cut back on him. And you had a situation where Mark was attacking Juan Zarco and uh, Jorge Martin slipped through on, on Maverick and then the broadcast cuts off to Paco and Brad Binder. That's front, right, where, yeah. Where nothing happened. And I don't know what the fuck you're doing at Dorna. I'm honestly, while this was happening, the crash didn't happen. I thought, 
get back because I thought, okay, now something will happen like an overtake. I didn't anticipate a crash like this, but um, I thought uh, to myself, why would you uh, change to Paco at the at the lead of the race when nothing is happening at the moment? And turn four is notorious for overtakes. We saw it in Moto2, we saw it in Moto3, we saw it with uh, some MotoGP riders. And to then change to Paco is almost criminal. Whoever is making the decisions at the broadcast needs to get fired. They need a totally different system. I have the solution as always. You know, I would delay the broadcast like 15 to 30 seconds, whatever how long you need to work out where something is happening. And then when you see, okay, there's a crash, then you put the TV um, to TV broadcast to this camera where the crash is on. And you could The same with the Brad Binder situation. They were showing replays of the replays. And one minute later, even the commentators didn't know that Binder was off. And they realized, okay, Jack Miller's leading the race. What the fuck? I mean, it could be so simple. I believe the NFL is doing this uh, with their broadcast as well. They are delaying it 30 seconds for different reasons. Because in the USA, when certain things are said on TV, like you can't say fuck, or <laughs> certain things are displayed then um, they have a chance to correct it. Yeah, they have a chance to correct it and you can't show those uh, things on TV. This is the reason why the NFL does it and mm -hmm. I would presume the NBA does the same or something. Mm -hmm. But um, I would do the same in motorcycle racing. To us people at home, it's no difference. And to the people on track, yeah, then the broadcast is a little bit delayed. Get over it. <laughs> it's it's quite a good solution. Easy. It's quite easy. Just have it 30 or 15 seconds. And how long does it take somebody to figure out that there is a crash we need? It's just one button to press, uh, probably. And uh, it should be done in 15 seconds or at worst in 30 seconds. But nothing too crazy. And then you can have a race where, for example, you know nothing is happening at the front. Let's show the people fighting in P15. But then if something is happening at the front, you can always cut back and show the fans what they want to see, which is action. And not those stupid replays. You know, you want to see this stuff live. Of course, you can do replays, but in a perfect world, you don't miss anything that happens on track when you do your replays. So the broadcast was extraordinarily bad today. Yeah, and I I think it's a simple solution. I don't know why anybody uh, hasn't come up with this at Dorna, but at the end of the day, it's Dorna, so I'm not surprised. So uh, yeah, I just quickly wanted to point this one out, and I really hope Mark is not injured because it looked bad. You know, always those uh, crashes where he lands on the head. I always get uh, fear that he get concussed again and has this double vision again and maybe he misses uh, the test on Tuesday, which wouldn't be good for him. Mm. So, uh, yeah. I think that it was just an unlucky situation and Jorge Martin just had to go for it and Mark Marquez for once was in the receiving end of an ambitious move, uh, which probably wasn't necessary, but... You know, 
Sorry, you know to interrupt, do you know what the fun... I know this isn't funny because it was a really bad crash and I am glad Mark's all right. Um, it's kind of funny, out, I guess, what yeah. you're going to say. <laughs> shout out to Jacob from Nine Moto News for this because he just put it on his story a little while ago. He put a post up on Facebook about the crash and obviously that had happened. You know, Mark Marquez, Jorge Martin, and all the middle-aged white people were saying, fucking Mark Marquez, I knew he would do it again. And they didn't realize he was on the receiving end. And I was like, oh my God. Oh, you idiots. And they, they, they automatically assumed it was him that did it, but it was weird seeing him on the receiving end, but I am glad he got up and he walked away because those are dangerous landings for sure. And yeah, as far as the broadcasting goes, clearly it was the safety chimps in charge of the cameras this weekend. Um, they forgot to hit the button, but um, yeah, I think it's a very good solution and I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, have a 15, 30 second delay that way, if there's something that needs to be replayed, you know you can. Um, if there's an if if there's an incident that needs to be shown to the people, you can show it to the people. If there's a crash that's so dangerous it shouldn't be shown, you know not to show it. So for me, it makes a ton of sense. Also, I would like to talk to you about KTM because they took a shit. <laughs> All four KTMs <laughs> fucked up in different ways. Oh, wow. I mean, Brad Binder took a long lap without even getting penalized. Then Jack Miller went into full Jake Dixon mode and crashed in the lead. And Augusto Fernandez and Paul Espargaro crashed as well. Paul was uh, smart enough to pick up the bike because everybody crashed and he still got two points. <laughs> but, I mean, the thing with Brad Binder... Mistakes can happen, okay? But if you're in a lead and you know it shouldn't happen like this, then Jack Miller also, it could have been cold tire whatsoever because the last right-hand corner is a little bit uh, further behind. In Valencia, you have left... Uh, one, two, three, and then right is four, five, and six, seven, eight, nine is left again, and 10 where Jack Miller crashed is right again, and mm. 11 is also right then. So it's it's a little bit of a stupid mistake for both riders because I believe it was both cold tire, like cold side of the tire, mm -hmm. and I haven't heard anything from the KTM riders, obviously, because we just got off watching the race, so... Uh, it's difficult to understand what was happening, but this is just my my assumption that both mismanaged their uh, their front tire there, and yeah, it's a little bit it's a little bit sad for both because the victory was there for the taken. Paco wasn't gonna uh, compete with them because he didn't want anything to do with uh, the KTM's apparently. Like after Jorge Martin crashed. He turned around and let everybody pass. So, yeah, I don't know. But uh, it looked like both riders took an enormous shit there. But it brings back an argument which I've heard a couple of times uh, somewhere, which is, do we really need to go to Valencia in November? Like, I was there two years ago, and it wasn't warm, but it wasn't cold as well, you know? So when you when you are in the sun and everything is nice, then 
you can stand there with a t-shirt or in the morning it's quite cold and you have like a hoodie on but it's okay but when you go on a motorcycle it changes a lot because due to the speed everything cools down a lot like when you go outside and it's 20 degrees it might be warm but all of a sudden when you are on a bicycle and uh, go 40 kilometers an hour down the hill then it's not as warm as it was before maybe not a problem but there is a point where it becomes a problem you know mm. and I don't necessarily know if this would be a good idea to shorten the season because nobody actually uh, wants 21 races. And uh, do we really need four races in Spain? And do we really need to go until the end of November? I think it would be great to start the season like in Phillip Island in January or February, basically like World Superbikes doing it. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, cut out th some races you don't need and maybe make the calendar a little bit more efficient. But once again, we're talking about Dorna. I believe next year we will have 22 races, right? Because they put Aragon back in the calendar and uh, Kazakhstan. Yes, so, that's right. Yeah, it's going to be even crazier. And yeah, I don't know what to say. But yeah. All Maybe. I'm going to say, all I'll say for next season is if Borat isn't the mascot for Kazakhstan, I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> Hopefully there will be. I, I don't know if they even have the grandstands because last time I checked, they didn't have the grandstands. But if they have, they need some people with the Borat outfits <laughs> in the stands. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, th I think this is another very interesting discussion that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about a lot more in the off season too. Um the calendar's a mess. It really is, and it has been for a while now. You know, Valencia is a tough enough track on its own because, like you said, you've basically got 30-40% of the track that's left-handed until turn four, by which point that side of the tire's completely cold, then right-left again. And that's tough enough in good conditions, but to be there in November in the middle of winter, it's 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 a real nightmare, you know, for the riders. And that makes a tough track even more difficult to navigate when you're not even sure if that side of the tire is hot or not. So it's something we've talked about a lot already, I know, um, over the episodes and so on, but Dorna really need to try and streamline the calendar and have, you know, these kind of races in warmer conditions and have warmer races maybe in slightly colder conditions because riders are facing the extremes of the weather you know you've got like india and malaysia where riders are passing out and then you've got valencia where tires are cold so it is an issue and it's something i would like to see addressed yeah i mean look at philip island everybody was almost freezing to death yeah and uh with that being said, I still believe that a rider like Brad Binder or like Jack Miller, who aspire to be championship contenders, they should know better than this and they shouldn't crash out in the lead, you know? Mm. And uh, I mean, if Paco doesn't crash out, then it says a lot. <laughs> or if Mark doesn't crash out on his own, that says a lot as well. Yeah, so, true. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, by the way, I don't know the Bezeki uh, Mark situation. I haven't seen anything on the broadcast. I don't know if there's a replay or something. 
Well, all I saw was uh, Bazaki crashes, then uh, the World Feed notification that it's being reviewed, and then they said no further yeah. action taken. Yeah. So I, I can only assume it was a racing incident. Maybe Mark passes Bazaki and there's contact on the way down. That's all I can guess. But like you, I haven't seen anything. It certainly wasn't a Javier Tigas situation. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. No, but going back to KTM, I think both riders made a stupid mistake. They should know better. And it's just a KTM thing, you know? I don't know why, but for some reason, this brand can't get it together. Like, KTM things. You, you, you can figure it out for one or two races, but then... They are bad again. Like at the beginning of the season, they looked so good. And in the middle of the season, they were nowhere. And now Brad Binder and uh, Jack Miller were good in Valencia. Binder was good in Thailand. But still, Brad should have won today. I mean, he was not even three seconds off the race winner. And when he was in the situation where he took the long lap, it looked like he lost at least five seconds. So mm. he really should have won today. And I think he will be extremely disappointed in him for his mistake. Jack Miller should be extremely disappointed in him uh, for his mistake. And I really uh, hope that next season KTM gets it together, A, for Pedro's sake, and B, it's super entertaining when you have different manufacturers uh, competing for race victories. You saw it over the last couple of races when there was a different manufacturer, if it was an Aprilia or KTM or even Yamaha or Honda, it doesn't matter because they treat the Ducatis differently, you know? Yeah, they do. Um, and like you said, it's a very good point, because we've obviously talked about this at various points throughout the season. KTM's issues with consistency are unbelievable. You know, for a couple of races, they'll dominate the whole weekend and have a 1-2 at the front of the grid. And then for most of the season, they'll be completely nowhere. It's... It's such a strange phenomena that they can't get it together on a consistent basis. It's really strange. Like, it, okay, yes, Ducati is eight bikes. I know that and I appreciate that. But Ducati have now found a way of making their bikes work in any condition on any track in any part of the world. And, you know, KTM still have four bikes and they can't do it. Um, it's, it's, it's just really weird to me. Um, but... For them, this today will have been a big disappointment, especially for Jack and for Brad. They will see it as a missed opportunity, and hopefully next season they can get some more consistency together because this year they've been really up and down. Yeah. I mean, back in the day it was the steel frame, which is shit. Mm -hmm. Now they have the carbon frame. I'm quite excited if they will give it to Pedro at the test. And... I don't know what the deal with the carbon frame is, but uh, it was presented as this big miracle, but it really didn't do anything yet. Maybe it will come. Maybe they needed some data and they will bring something for the for the next test or for the next season. And we will see Pedro winning in his rookie season again, maybe. <laughs> but I doubt it with uh, Tech 3. I mean, this team is a mess. But... Um, Coming back to this race weekend, huge disappointment for KTM. But Fabio Di Gianantonio and John Zarco, they almost looked like they are going to take victory away from, from Paco. So this was a little bit fun. Yeah, it was really good. And 
both um I know we were talking about this before we started both Ducatis just got really good towards the end of the race it was really weird and Gian Antonio did a brilliant job of putting the pressure on Paco I I actually thought going back to the start finish line at, in the last lap I swore I thought he was going to undercut him and race him to the line uh unfortunately it didn't happen but look Fabio De Gian Antonio is not going to be upset about that um he's got another podium another phenomenal performance Joan Zarco is kind of the same you know he's on his way to Honda he had a great race um he was around you know p5 p6 all race and then turned up the pace towards the end and they'll both be happy with that because uh Peko was just on a different level unfortunately so that's about as good as it could get yeah I'm very happy for Digia because he had a very difficult start to his MotoGP career mm -hmm. and now he figured it out and it looks like he has a spot for next season at Valentin Rossi's team but it's it's just a feel-good story you know you saw him struggling yeah. uh I have a quote from a couple of months ago or whatsoever there are seven Ducatis uh seven good Ducatis and Digia <laughs> <laughs> Put it and this, <laughs> yeah, this one isn't accurate anymore. So I definitely am happy for him. This is kind of the underdog story you root for. And uh, whatever happens with Digia next season, I think he can be extremely proud of him for what he did. He can be extremely proud of him, how he developed. And it's just good to see. It would have been so nice if he won the race. And he out of all people would have been the first back-to-back -back race winner this season oh. so uh yeah yes yeah, i mean john zako was good but just doing john zako things you know you know what have would have been funny what if Jorge martin took out peko in this situation at the straight and what would have been the celebrations like you know oh <laughs> i believe at first he would be upset at Rocher, but then after everything calmed down what would the celebrations look like would they celebrate in the box or would he go out after the race on his second bike and uh, celebrate then and would he celebrate in the gravel trap because he just <laughs> won the world championship by getting taken out i mean it would have been hilarious and i'm kind of bummed out we didn't see it thinking about it because it would have been very very awkward at first but then again very funny so i think he would have gone out on his second bike after the race uh, was finished and then celebrated there because i don't think he would have done all the basketball thing in the box what no i agree and you know that's what i would have done um go into the gravel trap and start shaking the bike <laughs> you know uh, that that would have been really funny but yeah it's an interesting thought but i i think they would have done it anyway with the second bike even if he did crash because look it's such an important achievement uh, achievement you're not just going to keep it to the pit box so yeah they'd have done it anyway what did you make out of the celebration did you like it um it's not the cringiest celebration i've ever seen um i thought um i think we've seen worse celebrations in recent years um i didn't know Packer was that big of a basketball fan um so that's new but yeah not the worst i've ever seen before um it, i don't think it touches anything valentino rossi did you know it's not the speeding ticket or the bowling pins or anything like that but 
hey, whatever makes them happy. You know, he's world champion. He's kind of earned the right to celebrate how he wants to. Bit of a shit slam dunk, though, I'll say that much. It wasn't Shaq breaking the backboard. <laughs> I saw the basketball and I was saying to myself, please throw at this. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been hilarious if he had like three or four attempts to uh, to throw it and missed every time. But yeah. I thought the rings were cool. Yeah, the I rings like, were I like cool. The, I like I the rings. But it still was a little bit awkward because you put the rings on and then you have to pull them off again to put on your glove. So that was a little bit weird. But uh, yeah, and generally, it looked a lot like last season. So I guess it's just Paco's thing to win a world championship in Valencia. <laughs> But I, I generally liked it. And I would like to give a quick shout out to Raul Fernandez in the top five. I believe Good for the result. first time. And we didn't see anything of it. If the if it wasn't for the if it wasn't for the results at the end, I wouldn't have known. I didn't see him on TV like more than two times or whatsoever. Yeah. So yeah, it was very, very good. I believe I saw him once overtaking Maverick Vinales and the rest I don't remember. Probably at the start somewhere he was in the pack. But uh, in general, good result, but it it's a little bit um, sad that we don't celebrate it enough because of everything that happened, you know. There was like this drowning meme, no? <laughs> that's exactly what it was like yeah. you know um but yeah um this comes back to the discussion we had earlier about the broadcasting and not having a time delay i'd like to see next year my one genuine improvement that i'd like to see is i want to see more of the action from the middle of the pack you know like i get it if there's a back and forth battle for the podium or something by all means show that i'm not saying don't do that but I really want to see more of the overtaken action in the middle as well. You know, we we did actually used to get it back in the day where even if someone like Rossi or Pedrosa or Lorenzo was racing, you would see more of the other riders. I do want to see more action. I don't just want to see Paco's bike in every frame of the 45-minute race. Show me Raul Fernandez overtaking Maverick Vinales. Show me the overtaking. Show me people fighting for positions because MotoGP isn't just about a few riders. There's a whole grid. And people want to see all of them. So glad you made that point because I do want to see that from next year. Yeah. Frankie was in P7, which was also tremendous, but we didn't see him on TV as well. It was a little bit of a shitty broadcast. I think we more or less discussed everything uh, from MotoGP, right? If there's uh, nothing. Yeah. If there's nothing left from your side, I would like to talk a little bit about Moto2. Mm-hmm. And now... Oh, I remember there's one thing I would like to discuss uh, with MotoGP. Brad Binder overtook Alex Marcus very, very rough. Oh, yes. Yes, he and did. And then he got a penalty, this drop one position penalty. First of all, do you agree with the penalty? Yes, I do, actually. Um, the reason I agree with it is is because Alex Marquez had the line, he was doing his thing, and then Brad Bender, to be fair, absolutely yeeted him out of the racing line. So, yes, for once I can actually say I agree with the penalty they gave because he wouldn't have gotten the position otherwise, and yes, it was the right decision. 
I agree with it for a different reason because <laughs> okay. Brad Binder's overtake um, made Alex Marquez lose two positions. So he lost obviously the position to Brad Binder, mm -hmm. but also to Fabio De Gian Antonio, who was behind. Mm -hmm. So I believe that it was only right that Brad Binder had to give one position back because Alex Marquez lost more than one position due to the overtake. So it was fair, you know? Yeah. What I didn't like is that he was able to overtake Maverick Vinales, let him back through, and then overtake him again. Because it's kind of... I don't know how the rules are phrased, but I don't think it fits the purpose of the penalty. That's true, yeah. It's a bit of a meaningless penalty if he can just overtake him straight yeah. away again. Yeah. And... But at the end of the day, he had to serve his long lap, so... <laughs> I guess I, I'm he was still laughing about that because yeah. I, I saw him doing it and I thought Brad Bender hasn't got a long laugh. What's what's he? Doing? Oh, see some of the things you see in this sport, man. Honestly, it was so funny. Yeah, but I got reminded of the Brad Bender overtake because I wanted to ask you about Alonso Lopez, and Alonso Lopez didn't get a penalty for his overtake on Pedro, and Pedro lost five positions or whatsoever. So what do you make out of the consistency of the stewards there? Is it comparable or do you think that it was fair game that Alonso overtook Pedro like this? Um, I think the only consistency with penalties is that they're inconsistent. Um, you know, I, I, I actually think there's an argument you could make. All right, in this instance, they're similar. But in theory, you could argue that Alonso's overtakes more of a penalty than Brad's and Alex. Um, yeah, it absolutely, at the very minimum, should have been a drop one position. I thought it could have been even a long lap. Um, that is where my head was. Because like you just said, Pedro lost four or five positions because of that overtake. And you can't do that, you know. Right or wrong, yes or no, you can't go in and make a rider lose several positions just to overtake them. So, yes, in my opinion, Alonso Lopez should have been given, at the minimum, a drop position penalty. But it could have and should have been more than that. Yeah, and Alonso did it not only to Pedro, he did it to a couple of other riders as well. Mm -hmm. So I thought he was a little bit over the limit with his overtakes. But if the stewards don't penalize it, why shouldn't he do it? That's another point of view there. Mm -hmm. And um, it makes me wonder, like, do you, do you want to compare Moto2 to MotoGP when it comes to penalties? Or are they two different things like but then if at the end of the day we still would have had to compare moto 2 to uh, moto 3 and moto 3 to moto gp and it would make a little bit of a mess so i don't i don't know i'm generally interested do you think you can compare moto 2 and moto gp when there are similar overtakes like this like the brett binder and alonso lopez overtakes or do you think it's two different things um that's a very interesting question, actually, and I don't think it's one we've ever talked about, actually. I think MotoGP and Moto2 are comparable, just a bite, because I know they're different bikes and they have different power and so on. I think if we were talking about MotoGP and Moto3, that's incomparable because it's such a different bike and such a different championship. But MotoGP and Moto2, I think the principles are able to be applied pretty equally, you know, 
the bikes are powerful, the bikes are fast. If you're strong in the overtake in one, you are kind of strong in the overtake in the other. And look, at the end of the day, Moto2 is as close as you get to MotoGP. So if you can compare those two, what can you compare it to? Uh, to answer your question, yes, I think in most in instances they are comparable. There's some instances where I think it's a bit of a stretch. But if you're talking about block passes and overtakes, yeah, I don't see why you couldn't compare them. Yeah, and Fermi Naldegio was better than anybody, faster than anybody, so incredibly good. So Apparently good. he will stay in Model 2, and what I love about it, he signed a three-year deal with Luca Bosco's Guru and the speed-up team. And remember all the different contracts that were broken over the past two years whatsoever, like even for him to go to MotoGP it wouldn't be unusual but he said you signed a contract you stay here motherfucker and <laughs> I totally appreciate it about him because he has the contract he has the rights and I think this is the message we need inside the motorcycle uh, world that contracts are valuable because usually they aren't worth the paper they're written on Leo I have our next meme you know the meme of Kylian Mbappe running and his shirt getting pulled by? Yeah. Fermin Aldegar, Luca Boscoscuro. <laughs> that, that's basically what the situation reminds me of. And although it's a different principle, I actually, like you, I respect that the contracts are getting... Um, they're getting appreciated and they're being stuck too. Because like you said, Fairman signed a three-year deal with uh, Bosco Scuro. And I think it's good that we honor that, you know. Um, and I think it's good that Fairman honors it as well because I'm sure he could push and he could kick and he could scream and say, I want to go to MotoGP, I want to go to MotoGP. But in this instance, I think staying with Bosco Scuro is actually a really good move. You know, we talked about this last time about do we give the VR46 seat to do to Digia or to Fairman. Stay in Moto2, potentially win the title next year. 2024 is there for you. This is a good move for Fairman Aldeguer, and it arguably leaves him in a better position. So I think it's the right move. And as for today, you know, the last four weeks, he's been just better than everybody else. So credit to him. The kid's just great. I think it's a very, very dangerous strategy to stay in Moto2 when you have a MotoGP offer. And I'm going to tell you a story, which maybe you've heard, maybe not. In 2019, in Moto2, it was the first season where the Moto2 bikes weren't powered by the 600cc Honda engine. They were mm -hmm. powered by the 765 Triumph engine. Mm -hmm. And it obviously had a lot more torque, a lot more horsepower than the Honda engine. And for the first couple of races, Lorenzo Baldassari dominated everything. He crashed in Austin, but apart from this, I believe he won every race. And after Jerez, if I remember correctly, they changed the rear tire from a 190 to a 200 rear tire because they were afraid that the 190 rear tire wouldn't be safe for the bigger engines with more torque with more horsepower so they changed it and basically Lorenzo Baldassari's whole season and whole career fell apart in Moto2 because something with the rear tire if it was balanced if it was feeling I don't know you have to ask him but something something wasn't right with Lorenzo Baldassari there and it was because of Dunlop and the 200 rear tire 
So that makes me think that next season we will get Pirelli in Moto2 and Dunlop will uh, head the fuck out. And it makes me wonder if we get a new power balance inside of Moto2. Maybe somebody who hasn't been able to adapt to the Moto2 class as well as we might thought, like Isan Guevara, is able to totally exceed on those new tires. Maybe somebody who is just a midfield rider at the moment, let's say Samkhya Chantra, is totally good. And maybe we have a rider like Fermin Aldegir or Jake Dixon or Aaron Canet or whatsoever who are top five riders in the Model 2 World Championship and uh, don't get along with the tires. So it could have really been a big swing in the Model GP, uh, Model 2 power rankings if you uh, pay attention to all of this. Mm-hmm. That it makes me wonder. Obviously, we don't know and we will know after next season if this was a good move to stay in Moto2. I understand Luca Boscoscuro and his perspective. He has one uh, two of the best riders in the grid under contract and he wants to win. He is there for himself and he wants to advertise his chassis, which will be driven by the empty helmet squad with Ayogura and uh, Sergio Garcia next season. This will be interesting. Very. And from his perspective, I totally understand it. I don't know what Fermin's opportunity in MotoGP would have looked like, preferably a good one with Ducati. But I don't know how close he was to sign with Honda. And also, I don't know how much say he had into staying with Moto2. Like if, if Valentino Rossi could have put some money on the table and Luca Boscoscuro would have taken it. Maybe they, they, maybe there was a buyout clause and maybe Fermin wanted to stay in Moto2. I don't know. But if I was Fermin, I would have taken a MotoGP opportunity if I could do it, which we don't know. But mm-hmm. if hypothetically it was his decision too to stay in Moto2, then I don't know if this was a smart move. And I'm very excited to see how it plays out because... It will be totally different with Dunlop tires and Pirelli tires because in Moto3 they will change too. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm quite excited because tires are obviously so incredibly valuable. We've seen it in MotoGP with KTM, for example. They changed, uh, like Michelin changed the front tire from 2020 to 2021, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. And KTM, they looked good in 2020. They had it figured out. But the new tire was just too soft for them. And they were gone. And therefore, I'm very, very excited. I'm very intrigued to find out how this tire situation with Pirelli will play out in Moto2 and Moto3. No, it's an excellent point, And I don't disagree with the word you've said. Um, it is always a gamble. For sure, you know, as far as Fermin Aldeguer goes, it's always going to be a risk no matter what you do. You know, for example, he could go up to MotoGP and really struggle. You know, he he could. He, he would probably go up and be really, really good, but he could theoretically struggle. And then you do have the Pirelli tire change from next season, which is going to be a very big factor. I completely agree with you. And if there's anybody watching who doesn't understand the impact of having different tires, look at Yamaha. 
you know, when Valentino Rossi was at Yamaha and they had Bridgestone tires, it was the best bike in the world. And then when they changed to Michelin tires, they couldn't get any rear grip. They're still struggling with that issue to this day. So tires are essential for the bike and slightly different tires can have a massive, massive impact on who's good and who isn't. And I think you're right to mention it, Leo. I think it's a very good point and I think it's a very valid point. Um, as far as Fermin Aldeguer goes with those tires, look, talent is talent and i'm hopeful that they will find a way you know they could be even better on pirelli's you know we we literally have no idea everything Uh, is possible i don't know if you can be better than he is right now true i don't know if this would be possible but theoretically yes yeah, um, but listen, all I'll say is I think it's a good point. It's going to be a gamble regardless of what he does because the tire change is going to be an X factor. But listen, Fermin Aldeguer is 18 years old. He is so damn good on that bike. You know, he smoked everybody for a month straight, winning every single race by like three plus seconds. So if you need a reminder on how good Fermin Aldeguer is, there's your answer. Yeah, it kind of bumps me out that we didn't see Fermin versus Pedro like at their peak because I believe it was like a little bit shifted. Yeah, when Fermin was good, Pedro was already in safety mode, and rightfully so. And I don't know how much he pushes at the moment. But the last thing I would like to say before I head the fuck out is that uh, next year we will see WP suspensions on the Calex again. Different story. Because in 2015, 2016, they had uh, the WP suspension on the bike where Joan Zaku won the world championship with. And in 2017, they introduced a bike, KTM introduced the bike, which was very similar to the Calyx because they pulled all the data from Calyx, basically, due to the fact that they had the data from the IO team. Mm-hmm. And Calyx was extremely pissed. And... Uh, I know for a fact that they said no Calex will run WP from this moment onwards. But this one changed now because Calex in itself knows that they don't really have a like a law or something like that. They have somewhat of a point, but you can't uh, you can't force somebody to don't to not run WP suspensions at the end of the day. And if KTM goes to Dorna or the FIM and forces them, then it wouldn't be a nice uh, situation. So Calex doesn't want WP suspensions on their bike, but they can't... Uh, for, they can't... Uh, oh, they can't forbid any other Yeah, they can't forbid it. Yeah. So I'm very excited on how this one plays out. It will be a new factor because Red Bull KTM IO... Husqvarna and Gaskas will change also to WP suspensions. And if Celestino Vietti doesn't win the championship next season, we know that's the reason. So (laughs) that's the last thing I would like to say and um, leave you with that because now I have to head the fuck out and (laughs) do stuff. So, Kilan, I would like to thank you for this amazing season. Thank you that you do this completely free and uh, out of pure joy. And I really appreciate it. I appreciate everybody who watches this. And I'm very excited to see how next season goes. I will do my best to ask uh, Jack Gorst again to make the test review in Valencia and Malaysia and then the preseason test again. So 
those three I would really like to make. And also, I don't know yet what is planned for the off-season. We definitely have to review our pre-season predictions and also yep. make new pre-season predictions at mm -hmm. the beginning of 2024. So there's a lot of stuff happening. I'm trying my best to get interesting people on the podcast. Uh, I have some people in mind. I won't spoiler it. But uh, yeah, maybe something comes up over the winter, maybe not, who knows. So definitely tune up for the winter episodes, tune up for next season. And again, thank you everybody for watching. Thank you everybody for listening. Thank you, Keelan. And thank you to everybody who appeared on this podcast ever. I really appreciate it and goodbye. Yes, um, I'll just say real quick before we go, Leo, thank you again for having me as a co-host. It's an honor. I love doing this. It's such a pleasure. I love breaking down MotoGP with you and for everybody else. Thank you to all of our amazing guests who've been on with Leo throughout the season. It's so much appreciated. It really is. And most importantly, thank you to everybody who watches. You know, we have such a great community, such a great group of people who love our sport. It's a pleasure. And we've got a lot more stuff coming, including an in-person podcast. We will get that done, I promise you. So in short, thank you, Leo. Thank you, everybody else. And I cannot wait for 2024. So thank you. See ya.